Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We are getting back at her. Way to go, Canadians. Like a pat on the butt and a good shift. Well done. So what does that mean? Businesses are opening, trying to figure out how many people do they come back. Hospitality in particular is a big one. Who comes back? How much is too much spending on labor because we're not making enough money, but we've still got to be prepared and upstream in business. So much happens. What happens when you call and you say, hey, teammate, it's time to come back. And the teammate goes, meh, I don't know. It's hard on small business, that's for sure, because over the last three months, nobody's been shopping for extra staff. I think everybody was just kind of hoping that people would come back to work. Dan Kelly is the president, Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. He joins us now on the phone. Hey, Dan. Hello. Uh, I'm not surprised. I don't know if you're surprised that there's a portion of uh, the workforce that has left their jobs during COVID, received money, and said, you know, I'm good. I don't want to go back. Now, my dad had a very good point when we were texting yesterday. He said, can you imagine what it'd be like if the government hadn't stepped in and helped out and people were living check to check, trying to go three months without losing their house and being able to eat and what comes from theft and crime if those things aren't solved. So clearly, the plan was great to get us through that part, but it needs more work because small business needs people to come back, don't they? Uh, they sure do. And look, uh, the government did need to step in with a, with an, a different response than the, the traditional employment insurance given the COVID emergency. Uh, the EI system was just not going to be able to keep up with the millions of people that were being laid off at the, you know, during the worst of the COVID emergency. Uh, so, you know, government responded accordingly by created this, creating the CERB benefit. Unfortunately, what happened is they focused on the, the CERB benefit for those that are unemployed faster than they, than they did the wage subsidy. And had employers been able to get on the wage subsidy quicker, they would have more of them would have been able to hang on to their staff during the emergency phase, pay them with the government support, and then when they returned to work uh, and and were able to open again, those businesses, those those workers could have been recalled and and returned to work almost immediately. Uh, that didn't happen for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, the wage subsidy is in place. Uh, but we do need to start transitioning people away from the CERB benefits, supporting them to stay away from work, and moving them back into uh, employment, of course, safely, but to do that as quickly as we possibly can for the economic recovery to take hold. And, and, and it is, you know, the government, I think, is getting it. They, they put in place some rule changes. Unfortunately, that didn't pass in the House of Commons this week. But uh, they were putting some, place in, uh, some rule changes in place that said, if your employer offers you your job back, uh, then unless you have a pressing reason not to return, your CERB benefits would would end. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if you're in a place, and this is, I think, the kinds of things that matter on a human level, is if you're in a place where, say, daycares are not reopened yet, but your job has reopened, and it's not like your kids can just go to anybody else's place, that seems like a reasonable uh, problem that the timing of things just isn't quite working out. That would be a great example of one of those scenarios. Um sure. But there was a big resource issue. I know that in my business, we had a big resource issue with the wage supplement in that, 
you know, we didn't have an HR department that could go chase government grants, supplements, how to file it, how to do it. We couldn't even wait a week because the reality was the cost of the extra week uh, was just too expensive. And then, you know, the layoffs just seemed imminent. Was that common? Was there a real process problem? There, there absolutely was. Look, the wage subsidy wasn't announced for about a month until, you know, the, the 75% version anyway, wasn't am- announced until a month into this, into the COVID problem. Then it took another six weeks for the program to actually start delivering any money. So, you know, businesses were not able to hang on for, you know, two, two and a half months without, you know, and pay the wages themselves, especially in cases where they were entirely shut down. They had to lay off their staff almost immediately because otherwise the business would go bankrupt and there'd be nothing to come back to. Uh, so, I, you know, businesses re- responded in a way that they had to at that particular moment. And even the wage subsidy only covers 75% of wages. Uh, for many of those businesses, even the remaining 25% would have been impossible or near impossible. Uh, but look, we're at the stage now where businesses are starting to reopen. Uh, the wage subsidy, I think, now could be very useful as a recovery measure for many of these same small businesses. But we need to make sure that the CERB doesn't stick around. Uh, it, the CERB needs to stay but that it doesn't serve as an impediment to getting people back to work. It's going to be a messy recovery, though, because it's not just the CERB benefit that is deterring workers from returning. We've also spent two and a half months telling work, telling everyone not to leave their home. So, it can, I, you know, I can understand why it's an abrupt shock to say, well, hey, let's now get back to your retail job or your uh, your hospitality work um, after we were told, you know, we were told month after month not to leave your home. So, It's going to be a bit of a transition. Employers are going to have to be patient. But what we really need is, of course, to ensure that there are those those workers that are hesitant to come back, not so much because of the health issue, but because of you know their bills are being covered. That we give them a nudge back into the workforce. That that really needs to happen. Well, I would like to add on to that. Not only did we tell workers to stay home, but we told everybody don't go shopping. So there's no consumer in a lot of cases to be able to go out and have a job to go to or need the same amount of staff. Like, I mean, going to a mall today to go shopping for new pants just doesn't seem like such a priority as it used to a few months ago when we're, all we could think of was, damn, I need new pants. I mean, so the psychology around everybody and the ways of thinking have changed. And that's that's extremely difficult for small business. Um, the one piece that I just sort of wanted to add on to that was the inside the recovery those most businesses still aren't even getting clear direction anyway, are they? No, there's a lot of challenging information out there, lack of it in some some instances. Governments are, look, I think everybody's trying to do their best, including governments, to try to sort all of this out. The business community is a complicated one, and there's not clear rules to guide every single possible situation. Um, at the same time, provinces are kind of working as they can, to provide better quality information to businesses in terms of how they reopen. CFIB, my organization, just joined an initiative called Post Promise, and that is postpromise.com, and, and it's designed to give employers basically five principles that they can adopt in their business and then post what they've done to the consumer to try to ensure that consumers recognize that businesses are taking step, steps, including small businesses, taking steps to, uh, to ensure their safety. That's going to be critical in order to get to give consumers the confidence to go back and buy that pair of pants in the in the retail setting uh, the way that they used to. Uh, without that, I worry that that many consumers are going to stay home for months and months and months, 
uh, and these businesses are just going to go bankrupt, not during the emergency, but but in this recovery phase, and, and that's going to help nobody. Do you think the postpromise.com idea is going to help address some things that we see? For example, it's really hard to budget time now, I find, and... That so, for example, I had to. I needed a, a new nightstand, so I went to IKEA, and in Calgary, IKEA, everyone's lined up outside. They moved through the line pretty quick. It wasn't anything bad, but it certainly did add an extra twenty minutes or so onto the day. Costco, you used to wait in line uh, at my Costco, but now as long as you're wearing a mask, you can go directly inside. Doesn't matter how many people are inside. So it is incredibly difficult to predict even what basic errands look like. Is that sort of the intention of what really helps? Small businesses, when consumers can know what to expect, as opposed to walking into a place and going, "Whoa, this is terrible! I'm out." You got it. And and look, this is where I think small independents can really help uh, flatten the curve even further, because there aren't lines in most small, medium-sized companies. Yeah, you know, the, and this was the the part that I think didn't make sense to me during the during the emergency phase, is we forced everybody that needed that new pair of pants to or garden hose to line up at Costco or Walmart because all the independents were closed instead of allowing them to safely reopen uh, with some basic principles to spread the number of consumers out among more businesses. There are thousands and thousands of little independents all across the country. Uh, now we're at the stage where those independents can reopen, and I actually think that you know what I'm hoping will come out of this is that consumers will, while they've spent a couple months doing online and going to the big box stores uh, because those were the only games in town, that now they dedicate more of their time and dollars to the smaller independents, both helping them out in terms of making sure that they stick around in their communities, but also making sure that they themselves have fewer lines to face, uh, and the small guys can can do a better job of physical distancing than, than some of the big players can. Yeah, and certainly the touch points can be can be different, but how confusing is that, though, really, when you think about it? I, I like the way that you shared that. In When you think that we said to everybody, don't go out, and then it was, okay, you can go to the big box stores, but by the way, shop local... And then, but local was still, for the most part, closed, with the exception of some local franchises. Um, and yeah. then now we're saying, by the way, support local and don't go to the big box stores. Like it's it's all backwards. It really is. You know, we're all our heads are all spinning these days, and 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 I get I get why consumers are confused, workers are a bit confused, and and business owners themselves have have uh, have got a lot to sort out. Uh, at the same time, I'm hoping that everybody will be patient as we get back to somewhere closer to normal. Right now, about 44% of small Canada's small business community is fully open, but that means that 56% of businesses are either fully or partially closed. So we still have, across Canada, a long way to go before the economy, the small business economy, is open to everyone. That can't come soon enough. We have to find ways to do this safely. Nobody's predicting we're going to have a vaccine in the next couple of months, and unless we're prepared to stay in shutdown mode for another six, eight months or a year or two, uh, gosh, we've you know there isn't enough government money, there isn't enough tax revenue to support a shutdown of the economy the way that it has been for for months and months and months. So let's find a way to safely redo this, and that's what we're working uh, working really hard at CFIB to make sure it happens. Are you hopeful? You know, I am. Uh, it is nice to see that more businesses are open, uh, but I hope that consumers can can regain some of their confidence and, and start to patronize those small guys in their local communities. If they don't, unfortunately, we're going to be facing a whole bunch of boarded-up uh, businesses in every community, every main street across the country. And that would be a real shame if, you know, we're now faced with just a few, a handful of big multinationals as the only places uh, for for which we can do with with whom we can do business, 
supporting small is something that we're working on a major campaign at CFIB, and, and uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, and it, the cascade of that turns into uh, twofold investment funds for retirements um, with commercial property plus uh, taxes locally, and that cascades into a very ugly scene. So it's definitely something that needs to be dealt with. Our guest right now, Dan Kelly, thanks so much for the time today, sir. Anytime. All right. Dan is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. If you have a favorite favorite local business, stop by. Give them a shot if you need something. So incredibly important. From Global News, sharing insight on something else that I find absolutely terrifying. i got to tell you, Leslie, it terrifies me. Uh, Leslie Young is the senior national online journalist of health for Global News, reporting um, a little bit of an update of COVID-19. You have a new piece this weekend, though, Leslie, about super spreaders. Does it terrify you a little bit like it terrifies me? I'm finding that a lot of this news um, of the day today has really got me feeling uneasy. Well, I have to say, so the word super spreader obviously is a little scary in itself, um, but it's maybe not quite as bad as it sounds when you actually dive into it. Um, and the reason for that is uh, basically what, what a super spreader is, is people who catch the virus, not everybody spreads it at the same rate. So there are some people who hardly spread it around at all, and then there are some people who actually seem to account for quite a large number of cases, much, much above the average. I believe the Prime Minister called that talking moistly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think is what he said. We all want to avoid talking moistly, especially with with a super spreader. The the problem is, of course, we don't know uh, who these people might be. Hmm. So, super spreaders, to me, feels like something out of a movie, kind of daunting. At the same boat, I originally started to think of super spreaders like protests. That's one thing that, you know, like these massive events where I thought of the event size, I didn't think of the person. And it seems to be the perspective on a super spreader is the the people around, if I understand correctly. So that leads me to believe it doesn't have to be a big event, does it? Well, actually, it's a little unclear at the moment whether it's that there's an individual who spreads it because some biological reason that we don't understand yet uh, that leads them to shed more virus than the average person. But it, uh, according to some of the people I spoke to for this article, they actually believe it has more to do with the event itself. Hmm. So things like uh, like an indoor event in a closed room with a lot of people where you're very, very close to others, that might actually be sort of the catalyst for this event. I mean, the, the super, it might not be the super spreader's fault, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. If, if they're in this environment that allows the virus to get around really quickly. What are some of the examples of the events that you found? Because I don't think they're, re- some of them seem obvious to me. I mean, some of them, I shook my head and said, well, of course, but then other ones, not really. So what are some specific examples of these events that might surprise people uh, that are being considered as a super spreader? Sure. Well, one of the more obvious ones, maybe, is uh, recently there were a bunch of outbreaks in nightclubs mm-hmm. in South Korea. I mean, it's not super surprising when you think about a nightclub, a whole bunch of people dancing close to each other, breathing moistly on each other and all oh, that. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, oh, he's got a shiver. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, 
But some of the less obvious ones, uh, there was a quite famous one early on in the uh, epidemic in Canada, which was a funeral in Newfoundland that uh, accounted for a huge number of the province's cases at the time. And there was also an interesting one that's pretty well documented, uh, a choir practice in Washington State, where a whole lot of people ended up catching the virus as a result of, of going to choir. Hmm. Well, I mean, okay, singing. But are, are these, was this a situation, I don't even know if you have this information, but I mean, wouldn't people go to choir practice and sing with masks on? And can't you do that? Or is that one of these things that nobody happened to think of? They probably weren't thinking of it at the time, honestly, because this was a very, very early case in the, in the pandemic and in North America anyway. So it probably didn't quite occur to them. I, I believe they were standing far apart, but I guess they were still in a closed room. So mm-hmm. it sort of seemed to lead to that. You know, it uh, depends on where you are um, and depends if you drink, I suppose, across the country. The kind of store you go to to buy your beer in Alberta, where I broadcast the show from, filling in. Um, we have privatized liquor sales. So you walk into a beer cooler and, you know, you get your cold beer and off you go. The There was a, a couple having a conversation. They were, you know, distanced clearly. So it was really great to watch. But the one person sort of laughed and sighed like, a, how you do it? Oh, ha, ha. And you could see that fog, like in wintertime, that sort of blows out of somebody's mouth. That was very grounding for me in that moment to go, whoa, that's how far your your moistly travels um, in that conversation. Now, it clearly went only about halfway. Made sense, kind of the six-foot rule, but it is a lot further than you would think. Uh, as, a, as a health reporter, Leslie, there, there's got to be, um, there's been a lot more information about masks recently. Did you, were you able to connect you know, use of masks and some of those, or what have you seen around that, that that sort of fits this this sort of super spreader scenario? Does that help? Yeah, well, it seems like uh, everybody I talk to really recommends using masks. I mean, the the classic public health measures that we've kind of heard from everybody for the last few weeks are what everybody's still recommending, super spreaders or not. Uh, So that's wearing a mask, uh, maybe trying to have events outdoors rather than indoors, uh, wash your hands frequently. So all these things we've been hearing for a long time now, they still apply in, you know, despite the existence of super spreaders. If, if you want to either, if you're unwittingly a super spreader yourself, perhaps, um, or if you don't want to catch it, these are all things that can help. Uh, brainstorming. I could imagine this being a thing like church ceremonies, um, singing and all those kinds of things. That would be a a one for me. I could see this being a thing at schools. That's going to be a tough one. Was there anything else that um, that came up on your radar for this that, that hasn't been documented yet? Well, those are the big ones when I think about it. So anytime you've got a crowd of people in a closed space, so that might be a classroom, that might be a, a church, uh, could be, I don't know, some kinds of concerts or, or whatever. These are places where you're, you're at risk and people are at risk of spreading the virus. And, you know, if you think about it, though, it, we don't know where, how, exactly how much super spreader events account for the spread of the virus uh, as opposed to smaller scale kind of things. But if it turns out that they're actually a, a big part of this, just ending that particular kind of event might actually allow us to open up other parts of our society. Yeah. Because they're they're less of a problem, you know. Yeah. 
It's interesting. The article is at uh, globalnews.ca. You want to check it out. Um, it's very interesting and insightful, some things that we need to take care of our health with. Uh, Leslie Young, Senior National Online Journalist, Health with Global News. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks so much. All right, have a great day. So um, I think of uh, a bunch of different scenarios in this, um, you know, going to watch hockey games, all those things, like these could be it. And the super spreader uh, eases the mind a little bit. It's just a high contagious rate. It can be a small event or a big event, um, but it's when the stats are way higher than what they would typically be. In the last week, there have been two occurrences in New Brunswick of fatal shootings in regards to uh, citizens getting shot. In addition, both of those citizens uh, were Indigenous. Uh, Chantal Moore was about a week ago. And Friday night, uh, there was another shooting as well. Rodney Levi has been identified uh, by friends to Global News. And the RCMP are, of course, now seeking assistance from Oversight out of Quebec next door. Uh, Brenda Lucky also shared her uh, thoughts on everything going on inside the RCMP. We're going to talk about this coming up. So here are some of the clips of what was stated uh, from Brenda Lucky. We cannot assume respect. Respect in our organization needs to be earned. And we need to uh, maintain the trust and gain more trust in the Canadian citizens, including our Indigenous population. So we need to make those actions clear and concise and make sure the ones who do not follow our core values or have actions in in um, in line with our core values will be held accountable. To say systemically that we have racism, I think systemically there's racism in in most organizations, um, and I don't think the RCMP is immune to that. We're going to play more of those clips. If you don't know, Brenda Lucky is the commissioner of the RCMP. Our guest right now to talk about this. It's an interesting background, and I like learning about the perspective here of Chad Haggerty. Welcome to the show, Chad. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for asking. Um, We here uh, don't know your story. I think most of Canada doesn't know your story. Um, Your story, I would like to acknowledge, is an authentic one. Um, there has been good, there has been bad in your time within the RCMP. Things have gone right, things have gone wrong. But there's a piece of your integrity of that I don't think people think of that people that you're sharing now openly in regards to being in the RCMP. And I think that if I've got the terminology wrong, please correct me, Chad, because I mean this is not this is new to me. But you called yourself a white passing indigenous man. So does that okay. mean that so you just lightered skin? Uh, your family and family lineage is uh, is Aboriginal, and and so many people didn't know. Is is that how that worked? That's exactly right. I I look like uh, average white male um, in my forties now, so I look like an average old white male. <laughs> um, my lineage is on both sides uh, is Cree from northern Alberta. My grandmother was in residential schools, um, and. Uh, was deregistered from the Indian Act. I was born and raised on the East Prairie Métis Settlement in northern Alberta. Uh, for those not from a Métis Settlement in Alberta, uh, easiest way to describe them is they're very similar to uh, First Nations reserves. Um, the only difference is w- would be evident to people from one or the other. So where, where in Alberta is that? Let's let's create a little geography here because I I think it's around High Prairie, isn't it? 
You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's about three and a half, four hours northwest of Edmonton. Yeah. Um, there are eight Métis settlements in Alberta. High Prairie is the nearest town. Uh, Edmonton was our city of choice. And all of the Métis settlements in Alberta are um, are north of Edmonton. So um, I was actually fortunate to, in my mind, in hindsight, I'm not so sure, but at the time I was fortunate to become a, a summer student with the RCMP. It was a program offered to um, Indigenous youth that were uh, pursuing an education and hopefully one day pursuing a career in the RCMP. So I did that for a summer. Uh, and the next year I, I applied for, was accepted and uh, into the RCMP and went to Regina for training and then got posted to uh, St. Paul in northeastern Alberta. Huh, okay, well, uh, let's, uh, let's, create some, let's create some clarity on a few things that for the audience so they understand, because some of the things you're talking about. So I, for just to be clear and full transparency, I grew up in Fort McMurray. So very familiar uh, going to school, playing hockey with kids from Fort McKay and Anzac. Um, you know, Fort Chip was a thing uh, because of my parents' jobs and what they were involved in, in and around oil sands. Plus, I have a very good friend of mine who's from Beaver Lake, which isn't very far from your world right. either. And um, all of that, and we had a lake house in St. Paul. So for full transparency, I didn't know all of those connections as we started this. So there might be some pieces that we can dig into here. So when you Absolutely. got into when you got into being a police officer in St. Paul, which in St. Paul, there's not a ton of res locations around there, is there? Well, there, there are two. The first one, the closest one, is the Saddle Lake uh, First Nation. Oh, Saddle Lake, right. 20, yeah, 20 Black Labation out there, Smoky Lake. Um, that was just outside of our area. Good Fish Lake Reserve was, was also in my police area, and I was posted specifically to Saddle Lake and, and, uh, and Good Fish Lake. Uh, Saddle Lake is a reserve. They, at the time, at least, they had about 5,000 people on the, on the band register and are on the band list. And I was in uh, a First Nations policing role, FNP role, as it was referred to at the time in the RCMP. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that I'm white passing and I, uh, you know, to the, to the casual unemployed observer, I, I would pass as, as white. Um, everybody in the office, everybody that I worked with, uh, knew that I was Indigenous because that was one of the prerequisites to, to be in a First Nations policing role. Well, that was going to be my next question, is did you tell your co-workers that your, your lineage is Indigenous and that's your bloodline? So that answer seems to be yes. Do you think that these other officers, because you said you heard the comments, did not act on the comments. That's that backwards integrity thing that you're looking into. Um, do you think these other officers just kind of forgot because uh, you don't look like a Native dude, if I can be frank? No, no, I, I think... Uh, some of it may have been they just kind of forgot, um, and some of it was they just didn't care. Um, and some of it was that they absolutely knew, and they absolutely used uh, that information to, to make comments. Um, so one of the misconceptions about um, police officers who come from a visible minority um, or identify as being part of a visible minority, uh, there's an expectation or or a stigma attached to them often by other police officers saying that they, you know, there's, there's an impression that they didn't merit getting into the police agency in the regular stream, quote unquote, um, as if uh, their quality as an officer and, right. and therefore their quality as an individual was diminished in some way. You got the job because quote. you're indigenous. That's it. That's why you're here. Exactly. I'll yeah. say it like it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, thank you. Hmm. 
So now you've spent a lot of time hearing those comments and saying those things. You didn't stand up for that, Chad. How does that sit with you today? Uh, well, I, I, Stephanie McLean is an acquaintance of mine, and she sort of put it in, uh, she put a little bit of context to it, and I was beating myself up about it. i generally a fairly vocal guy. I generally stand up to bullies or for people against bullies. I mean, I'm a I'm articling in criminal law, that's that's kind of a job now. Um, and I never stood up for myself, or I, I certainly didn't for the first couple of years. Mm. In hindsight, when you're getting into an organization like a police organization, um, it's pivotal that you toe the party line, that you become one of the team. In fact, it's, it's a fairly common phrase, uh, the thin blue line of policing. And so you, you band together, you, you do what those around you are doing. And what those around me were doing were complaining about um, the quality of work on, on the reserve, the quality of people on the reserve. And I hate to say that I, I went along with it, even participated at times. And then um, one, of, one of my mentors in, in policing was an Indigenous man who had you know, a fairly long career. And he pulled me aside one day and... Um, to be blunt, kind of pulled my head out of my butt and said, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're allowing people to talk negatively about you, about your family, about your community. Um, and he kind of set me straight and, and let me know that it, it's, it's not okay to participate in these activities, no matter how much you feel like you've got to fit in, no matter how much the supervisors that you respect um, and the coworkers that you respect, no matter how much they're doing it, you, you need to be better than that. And, and I stopped participating. Um, I didn't immediately start calling it out. I, I would let people who didn't know that I was Indigenous, um, I'd give them a little, a little bit of room to, to say whatever they wanted to say. And um, it became known that you know, my other coworkers would smile, knowing that eventually I was going to say something. Hmm. Um, but that was very, I mean, that's taxing as well, because you're, you're dealing with... Um, the language I know now is that you're dealing with these these microaggressions or you know the trauma that comes from hearing it. And eventually, I got to the point where I started announcing my my heritage, my indigeneity, um, pretty much on on initial meeting. I mean, we joke about vegans and CrossFitters. Yeah, um, announcing it immediately. Uh, I started doing that with with my heritage. I wanted it out there, and I wanted it known that uh, I wasn't I wasn't going to stand up for it anymore. Yeah, um, it's an interesting comparison. We're going to take a little break here, Chad. When we come back, I mean, the uh, RCMP and Brenda Lucky herself has has said this particular statement, and I want to hear it. We'll get you to comment after the break. This is a moment, a big time in history, and a big time for police to step it up. And the bar is set high, but so are my expectations for my organization. And I am so absolutely determined to make the change. And I think it's a moment for leaders, including myself and all my commanding officers and all my members of our senior executive committee to be leading the organization. And we're an organization that is very keen to change. Chad Haggerty, he spent 17 years as an indigenous man working for the RCMP. And um, yeah, first I'll acknowledge how great is it to move into law from that and to be able to make that transition. That's a big part of your life. I can imagine that's both daunting and awesome at the same time, Chad. And for the sake of being thorough in the background, because you worked for the RCMP in and around St. Paul, um, it was Vincent Lake, by the way. I'm sure you've responded to many a high school party at Sunset Beach in Vincent Lake um, when you were there. 
and uh, depending, um, depending when you were there, maybe we've met. <laughs> you would have been on the front lines of the the party scene. No, uh, I yeah, transition. I was already an adult and, and all those things, okay. so maybe. <laughs> the transition to defense has been fantastic. I mean, I had I had RCMP officers, coworkers back in the day. Uh, telling me that I belonged on the reserve with the rest of the Indians. And I apologize for using that word. It's uncomfortable to hear. It's uncomfortable to say, but it was the language. And, mm-hmm. and I think using that harsh, lang- harsh language, I apologize to anyone offended by it, but that's, that was the reality of it. Um, you, know, uh, when, you know, that's individual racism. Is there systemic racism? Well, when I went to supervisors to complain, I was told not to complain. Otherwise, I would be labeled a whiner. When I looked for uh, transfers, at various times in my career, um, I was I was only offered other Indigenous postings, and my wife at the time, uh, she noticed that. And when we asked about it, if there were postings in non-Indigenous communities, uh, the reply that I got, and and I spoke with my ex-wife uh, a couple nights ago, and she reminded me that the exact quote was, "We like to keep our Indians on the reserves." Hmm. So that's systemic, both the policy um, around staffing and and the um, you know, the language used and the mindset used. So, uh, and sorry, I'm going to cut back to Commissioner Lucky's comments, if you're okay with that. Yeah, well, let me play this other clip, too, because you just spoke to this, and I'm going to play this accountability piece first, and then I'll let you go. I think there's times when our members don't act according to our core values, including racism. And when that happens, we need to hold those members to account. So that sounds like a bit of a diminish of what your experience says is just become common language. True. I mean, it's, it's my experience. Uh, you know, I left a bit ago, but I've in the in the last week, I've received comments um, from uh, you know, more than a handful of current RCMP officers and employees saying that things haven't changed. And that's concerning. Uh, Commissioner Lucky is well placed to change things. She's got a, a, a history and a resume that would that would put, you know, make her well placed, well suited. To, to make these changes. Well, my Hopefully, understanding was that you've actually been quite a fan of her work, uh, just not necessarily her approach to this one. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, she she spent time in northern Manitoba. Um, uh, she's aware of the issues in northern Manitoba. There are issues between Indigenous people and police. Uh, she knows it. She's done multiple overseas peacekeeping missions and been commended for her service. She was on the front line of the Idle No More protests. It was disheartening to hear her deny systemic racism because if anybody should know better, she she's one. Um, hearing her walk that back and, and accept it, I, I I tend to accept that from her. Perhaps a little less so with uh, Deputy Commissioner Zablocki here in Alberta. His history doesn't show any desire to to um, strengthen relations with Indigenous communities or recognize Indigenous issues. I hope he comes around and and um, and is able to demonstrate uh, that that he's willing to work those problems. If he's Mm -hmm. not, then I hope he has a wonderful retirement quickly. Yeah, I have um, I have a couple of friends that, you know, like I said, Sean from Beaver Lake. And so, like, those guys, when family and friends come around, we'd always go out and have fun and everything else. And, you know, cousins and brothers and stuff like that. And he'd be like, oh, you know, such a nice guy. Nice to meet your cousin. And Sean would say things like, oh, he plays white well. And, you know, I always I would always ask those questions saying, well, hey, what does that mean? And he would reply to me and say, well, there's an expectation of behavior where quite often, you know, some family members that are, you know, live on reservations or whatever, that they have to change the way that they talk to people so they don't get judged. That's concerning because if it's that deeply rooted, even with family visits, 
um, and direct friends of family, um, that's kind of disheartening. I think your perspective that I wanted to acknowledge you for in a big way is to allow for, Chad, you, you've looked in the mirror and held yourself accountable for missing many opportunities to take a stand for whatever reasons you know, you have. So I have about a minute. Can you tell me how important it is for everybody, including yourself, to look in the mirror and take that stand? Because that, to me, seems like where we find solutions. Absolutely. It's, you know, speaking to, you know, previous me or to members in the force now, uh, to the general public, nobody's saying that you have to condemn every police officer you see. Everybody is saying that every police officer and every member of the public has to look internally and see what little casual, casual bits of racism are, are you allowing? Is it those comments about he plays white well, or, um, you know, that, that instant thought in your mind when you see a person of color if that's happening take the time to 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 internally resolve how your mind's working acknowledge it because we fully believe i mean as a defense i fully believe that rehabilitation is possible and we can be better than we are today yeah well and it takes um it takes looking at all sides i mean we have to you know i've said it before this weekend i'll say it again dr jody carrington look her up you got to name it to tame it and it there's no morality on looking in the mirror, it's just going, huh, that's what I'm doing here. Um, am I in, in integrity with myself? Not anybody else. Are you in integrity with yourself? Thank, thanks so much for sharing the time today, Chad. I appreciate it. Um, good luck, and I'll be in touch soon. Sounds good, Shane. Take care. All right, Chad Haggerty, Métis Northern Alberta, former 17-year RCMP officer, transitioning into a career in criminal defense. That's his story of what it's like in the RCMP. And it sounds like... It doesn't surprise me, but at the same time, it also sounds an awful lot like um, it is being diminished, or it's still at least hidden in some ways. AI, facial recognition. This seems to come up again and again and again. This week, companies like Amazon, IBM, Microsoft barred police from using their facial recognition software, citing concerns that the technology could lead to the wrongful arrests of black people. Facial recognition has been shown to wrongly identify black faces more often than white faces, just a technology stat. Should Canadians be concerned about facial recognition in our country? Are there any rules about who uses it and how should it be used? (laughs) I still can't get over facial recognition. I mean, it's really great if you're a good guy, but if you're a bad guy, it's really bad. Until you're a good guy that gets mistaken and taken as a bad guy, and then now the computers are deciding. (laughs) I don't want to have my tinfoil hat on, but at certain times in this conversation, I can't help myself, and I can't help but to put on my tinfoil hat just a little bit. Um, Anne Kavukian's former privacy commissioner of Ontario, now the executive director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Center. Thanks so much, Anne, for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. So help me, Anne. This okay. this is freaky for me. Um, inside the conversation of faces and the different kinds of faces that are out there, I, um, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about the policing part. I'm curious about the where the heck is this going part. Where does all of this conversation land with you as a privacy person? Facial recognition should be banned outright in Canada, everywhere. That's why I applaud IBM, Microsoft, Amazon for doing that last week. And there are many reasons for doing it. First of all, facial recognition 
doesn't matter if you're a good guy or a bad guy. It has nothing to do with that. The number of false positives, which mean the times when your face is falsely identified as being a bad guy, a person of interest, 81% of the time, the matches are false matches and they're false positives. And yes, this does sway in the direction of it. It's worse for people of color, but this applies across the board. 81%, this is huge. When I was privacy commissioner, so many victims of identity theft came to me seeking my help and saying, this isn't me. They fa- they're falsely accusing me of having committed this crime or having charged all the, racked up all these charges. It's not me. What do I do? And I helped them as much as I could. The first thing I would tell them to do is go to the police and file an occurrence report stating that your identity has been stolen. But then it's a nightmare trying to clear your name. Here, with facial recognition, where I should add, it is a totally non-consenting activity. No one, you have never given anyone permission to take a picture of your face and, and engage in facial recognition. No, none of that takes place. So no consent, false positives, very poor accuracy rates. Why would we continue using this? Well, let's ask um, let's ask some questions of that. Frankly, I agree with you, but I'm going to ask some questions here and try to be a little uh, devil's advocate, if you will, for the okay. sake of being thorough, if nothing else. Um, first of all, photos in public domain. I'm walking down the street. Someone takes my photo. A newspaper can use that photo today, publish it without my permission because I'm in public. So how would that work with facial recognition in public uh, from the perspective of nobody, you didn't give permission, but as an agreement as a society right now, we have that uh, agreement that's public domain. Uh, We don't have an agreement that your face and the facial features can be not only obtained, but then used in ways that will cast you in a very negative light. It will put you in the place of having committed a crime or something else where you didn't. So there's a huge difference between just being out in public and have your photo taken and having facial recognition engaged in. There are now companies, like a great Israeli company called DID, where they obfuscate the facial feature, the features in facial recognition such that you could see a picture of me, you would still know it's Ann Kavukian, but the facial recognition uh, Paradigms would not be able to detect that it's Ann Kavukian. This, this has become a huge business because facial recognition has grown dramatically. So mm-hmm. just because you're in public doesn't mean it's okay that they're going to do all this with your image and put you in harm's way. Well, yeah, and that's the part that gets me, especially when you said that, is that uh, storing your facial features is a lot different than taking a picture of you, right? Yes. Like dissecting totally. your face and all the curves and all the things, then banking it and comparing it to others that's the part we most certainly have not agreed about for sure. I agree. Okay, so what about Facebook and all these different social media platforms that are using facial recognition to say, is this you? Is this your friend? And they're basically tracking your behavior through photos. Um, this is not a police issue, but again, it's clearly a privacy issue. But that is rampant in the world today. It's rampant, and I don't do Facebook. But what I do know about Facebook is that if you want, and you have, it's, it's up to you to make this selection, you can actually select a privacy by design feature that Facebook actually, believe it or not, does offer. You've got to find it. And that strongly protects your identity and your facial image. But it's not commonplace. So people don't know it's out there. I remember I was at a conference. I was at the, about to speak, and this, the, the person from Facebook, the chief privacy officer, said, oh, Anne, I hope you're coming to my session. I'm going to give you a shout-out. We're using privacy by design. And I said, thanks, but I've got my own talk I'm giving. So they are using this. It's just not widely publicized. 
people who choose to go on Facebook and not take any measures to protect their privacy, you're throwing your information out there. Hmm. Okay, as Shane logs into Facebook, <laughs> searches for the <laughs> settings, uh, that's what I feel like uh, is going on. This culture of guilty until proven innocent seems to be oh. a thing, and the privacy part seems to be feeding it. Am I crazy? You're not crazy. It's outrageous. It's supposed to be, as you know, the opposite. But now, if your facial image is caught in terms of the facial recognition, it, it's just, you know, you're going to be in such harm's way. And there's a company called Clearview AI. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've heard about oh, it. Oh, yeah. They, they, they pull 3.3 million facial images off of Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, and then they sell it to law enforcement using facial recognition. I mean, it's appalling. So the fact that, again, IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon have started with a ban of all facial recognition, I see this as such a positive turn, and I'm hoping more and more companies will do the same. How do we watch out for it? Because a ban on facial recognition in some ways usually leads to some person that has redefined facial recognition to something we don't recognize. Are you seeing any other parallels in the world of uh, facial recognition that we need to be aware of, other terms, other phrases? No, actually, the, the only irony with all this COVID-19 mask wearing right now is that it is obscuring facial recognition yeah. because of the mask. That's the only good thing about wearing a mask is it flies in the face of facial recognition. But the point is, you're going to see more and more companies, but also I'm hoping governments, you know, I, I tweet uh, every day and a number of people tweeted to me and they said, um, Ann Kavukian and Justin Trudeau, why don't you ban facial recognition in Canada? And I said, I would love to. Trudeau, where are you? Let's ban this. Let's hmm. lead by banning facial recognition in Canada. Is there Let's anything good it. about it? Well, because I think if what, I'm a store let owner... Me one, let me give you a one-to-one comparison. Sure. There's, there's something called one-to-one versus one-to-many. Right. One-to-one is if you're at the airport and you present your face against your passport, for example, and it compares it one-to-one, and it says, yep, this is her. That's very different from one-to-many comparisons, where your facial image will be compared to, you know, gazillions of others, and that's where all the false positives arise, etc. Yeah, and pigmentation (laughs) and shape of faces has not been nailed down yet. It is still quite fledgling technology. I mean, for anybody, you know, who, um, you know, has the sort of standard Joe face, they can get recognized by all kinds of different things. And not to mention, I just had a a Twitter friend post how her son has grown up, got a new phone, he's a little bit older now, and now all of a sudden she's able to use the facial recognition to open his phone. Uh, (sighs) This this is her son, so they look alike. Um, If you looked at them side by side, you'd be like, wow, you don't look alike, but clearly to Uh a computer you do. So good and bad, remarkable. Thank you so much, Anne. Oh, it's my pleasure. You didn't always. make me feel any better, though. I got to tell so you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Kavukian, she's a former privacy commissioner of Ontario, the executive director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Center. Have a wonderful Sunday, Anne. Thank you. Likewise. All right. Thank you. That doesn't make me feel better. William um, is the technical producer of the show, shaking his head <laughs> and it's going, no way, man. I am not in on this. And I agree. I do not feel better after that. I do like the fact that it's, you know, some of the companies are taking a stand. Uh, Hopefully that goes, um, at least that continues. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.